Hello, I'm Ros Taylor. Welcome to something new from the bunker. The Bunker Daily, the clues in the name. While everyone is stuck at home, and maybe for a while longer, our regular presenters will be having one-on-one conversations with interesting people from the world of news, current affairs, politics, culture, and inevitably medicine. We're aiming to start your day with something useful and worthwhile, a bit different from the Punch and Judy show you get on the radio sometimes. The main full-length Bunker podcast will still come out on a Wednesday morning, but we'll be bringing you a bite-sized Bunker daily on Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays as well. We hope you like it. This has been an extraordinary historic week for Britain and the emergency coronavirus bill is one of its most significant aspects. A wide-ranging and, some are saying, draconian bill, it enables the police to forcibly detain you to make you take a corona test. It means mental health sufferers can be committed on the word of one, not two doctors. It speeds up the process of ministers accessing people's private data and it enables them to unilaterally close borders. It's expected to go through today. Is the government giving itself too many powers even for a dire situation like the corona emergency? With me to discuss it is human rights barrister Adam Wagner, former of the Each Other charity, of which, full disclosure, I'm a trustee and host of the Better Human podcast. Hello, Adam. Good morning. Tell us, what are the biggest powers that this bill gives the government? You said each part was worth months of debate by itself. Yeah, it's um, it's a very, very extensive bill. I mean, it's 329 pages long. Um, it has a, a whole range of it's not just powers it's it's changes to very important parts of our society um uh, uh, you know purportedly for a short period of time although um it started at two years and now it's going to be reviewed every six months um but as you said it in the introduction every aspect of this just to take just to give you an example, one aspect of this is that local authorities are going to lose the requirement to have to assess people for their social care needs and lose the duty to provide those social care needs. That's just going to go. Um, and the rationale is that social workers um, and particularly local councils will be so overwhelmed by coronavirus and by the response that they simply won't have time or capacity to be able to provide those those needs. Um, and that that change in itself, if that was coming in in a, in a normal period, that would take months of debate, committee stages, there would be amendments in parliament, there would be social, uh, there would be um, the public sector getting heavily involved. Um, but this is all going through on the nod. Um, and that's just one tiny aspect. As you mentioned, there's also um, huge swinging powers of detention, not just for um, the police, um, but also for medical staff to be able to detain people. Another um, really significant aspect is that anybody who is potentially infectious or is infectious with coronavirus um, can be detained. And in the healthcare setting, that is effectively unlimited. Um, events, Events and gatherings can be um, dispersed as we've already as we've been talking about the last few days and and there's a whole range of other powers um, and and I should say that not 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 everything here you know I'm not sort of coming along and saying this is all just a terrible executive power grab it's a um it's draconian etc it's it this is in the most part necessary to manage an unprecedented crisis um, and it's really important from a human rights perspective to highlight that the state has a 
ex very important duty to protect life and to protect our health. And in, in, in those circumstances, it's going to need some help in doing that. And it's, and it's good that rather than, um, you know, d d run the risk of doing things which are unlawful in, in, in urgent situations, it's trying to get its ducks in a row and, um, manage this in a, in a legal way. Um, but that doesn't mean that everything in this bill will be correct or will be appropriate. Um, and unfortunately, because of the rapidity of the of the bill process, which has really happened over a, over a few days, we're not really going to know if these measures are to go too far um, until they're actually operating. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because one of the biggest problems is that we don't know when Parliament or the courts will sit again. So how can we be confident that they'll still be scrut able to scrutinise the effects this bill has? Yeah, I mean, that that's an enormous worry. Um, I, the, the, and, and you're right that Parliament and the courts are the two natural arenas where this kind of scrutiny happens. So uh, just to give you an understanding of how emergency legislation tends to work. So uh, under the Civil Contingencies Act, what usually happens is the, um, the there will be regulations made um, and, and they allow for all sorts of swinging powers, but they expire after 30 days unless they're renewed. Um, and Parliament therefore has a, an opportunity to review what's going on and to make sure that the powers are appropriate if they're going to be re renewed. Whereas here, um, I, mean, I mean, it started as two years and it's now been reduced to a review after six months. But because of the unique nature of this crisis, it's perfectly possible that Parliament won't be able to sit. You know, maybe there, there might be a, an outbreak of illness in Parliament. Um, social distancing may not allow um, for the uh, for the traditional parliament sit and w without an alternative and, and this is quite different to for example in wartime whereas in wartime really what you what you're worrying about is the is the location of parliament and you might be able to you could sit parliament anywhere in, in theory in, in an underground bunker somewhere but, but, but because of the nature of this crisis we are going to struggle potentially for parliament to sit or to sit in its full form um, and then in relation to the courts well obviously there is a huge range of powers here which you would ordinarily see potentially challenged in the courts on an urgent basis. So, for example, someone who is being detained unlawfully, um, they would say, in in a medical setting or by the police, you know, should, they, they might want to seek an urgent judicial review. Um, equally, the government has a power to shut um, an airport or, or any port uh, for six hours at a time, just effectively on the discretion of a minister um, who sees that there's some sort of public emergency relating to that airport, um, that that would be a power which would be ordinarily the 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 pressure the pressure valve the the pressure release would be in by way of judicial review. So the owner of the airport could the administrator of the airport could take the government to court if they if that decision is unlawful. But we don't know if the courts will be running. We know, and, and, I mean, the courts are, are in absolute chaos at the moment as to, you know, people are not uh, able to come into court. So they're trying to do things by video link, but it's completely untested technology. I mean, the, the Supreme Court ran its first hearing 
by video link yesterday, um, and it was, was pretty extraordinary in in any event. But it's it really does remain to be seen whether the courts will be able to function in the way that we would expect them to run. Whether video and phone is going to be a an adequate replacement for in person hearings. Whether the judiciary itself will manage to. Um, c- stay open for business if i put it like that bearing in mind that it's it's not a young group of people they're going to be um they're going to be disproportionately at risk from from this virus they will be people will potentially be self-isolating you know we're reliant on an internet service and internet providers to keep things going so it, it may all be absolutely fine but it there's lots and lots of potential um, issues coming down the line from this legislation um, and, and the scrutiny of it. Yes, I hadn't thought of that because, of course, most judges, senior judges, are over 60, aren't they? Um, um, I, I, don't, I don't know the figures, but uh, I'm, I'm guessing, and, and there is, you know, judges are... There are plenty of, administ- uh, of slightly younger administrative court judges who are the judges who will be handling this stuff. It's the appeal court judges tend to be older yeah. um, because, they're, because they're more senior. So in the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court, I think you're finding a, a, it's a pretty you know older group of people so you and don't don't forget that the administrative court decisions are only the first rung yeah so um although most judicial review cases happen there but if you're going up up to the appeals um who, who knows um what the capacity will be and and the supreme court only has a a small group of people who are actually judges and am i right thinking this makes it easier for mi5 to conduct surveillance doesn't it because the government will be able to appoint what they call temporary judicial commissioners to approve or turn down the requests of the secret services why might they want those powers at a time like this um well the justification for that is that the is that the so this relates to the investigatory powers act um which is which is how a, a number of functions relating to the security services um, happen through these through this kind of secret court called the Investigatory Powers Tribunal, and the I think the 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 point of the of the of this ability to appoint temporary judicial commissioners is that that court that I think the government see that court as as important enough that they if it stops running it could it could impact on it could be detrimental to national security so if all the judges are off sick then they will they say will need to they will need to be able to appoint judges the mood in the country and especially the center and left seems to be in favor of strong and decisive moves and usually it's the right who are complaining about this should that worry us when progressives are in favour of draconian legislation like this, or are you reasonably content that we're getting the balance right? I think we've this. This is this is the time where human rights become really important um, because one of the central realizations um, after sec- the Second World War, which led to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the European Convention, and the very significant other treaties and, and, and agreements which came afterwards, was that during times of extreme crisis, um, and we've ne- we've never had a period in, t- in history like the first half of the 20th century for extreme crisis, crises ranging from the Spanish flu epidemic to the, the, the two world wars and the Holocaust, 
that when those when those crises happen societies tend to close in on themselves and look to a kind of strong and decisive leader who can do strong and decisive things because people are scared and i think what you can see from this crisis um in, in you know not dissimilar to the days and weeks after 9/11 is there is an almost universal um acceptance across the political sphere that there will need to be strong and decisive things done you know um let's have curfews oh, oh i'm i mean, i've seen a lot on on social media of oh thank god we've now got we've now got these is swinging um curfews and um and restrictions god i was really waiting for those and now we've got them i think i think that is that is a very natural response um to fear and to a crisis and quite often it's it's the right response because you know there's a there's an understanding that things have to change that we're going to have to make sacrifices that things will have to be different for a while um, and that is very much reflects the the kind of the, the the devil's bargain you make after a huge terrorist attack where civil liberties are ebbed away at um, but i think that for me as a as a human rights practitioner that that rings alarm bells i i i i am alarmed when i see um 93% of people supporting um very very significant changes to the way we live um, and restrictions on the way we live even if those changes are being being done across the world really um i mean maybe maybe even more so if they're being done across the world because it feels like there is such a consensus over what needs to be done that there may be a slight restri- um reduction in our critical understanding of what is being done um and, and and i think the way that you approach that from a from a human rights perspective is to say look th- th- these are clearly uh, extraordinary times that need extraordinary measures um just like um after a huge terrorist attack but that doesn't mean we can turn switch off for these weeks and months are ordinary critical um, faculties so we shouldn't just be saying oh well the government is the um the, the government is saying right we're, we're going to need to turn off social care requirements for local authorities or the government is saying we're going to need to provide pretty much unlimited and non time bound powers of detention for medical staff in hospitals now th- those those powers may well be necessary but it doesn't mean that they are perfectly calibrated or correctly calibrated yeah and we have lots of we have lots of um we have a lot of experience of these kind of you know of these kind of powers um in 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 in, in these settings and in other settings and and we know certain things are true for example that the that when powers are given they can sometimes be hard to take away because because local public authorities can get used to them we know that it is almost always better to have regular um and quite regular scrutiny in quite short periods in quite in quite short um with quite short gaps between periods by parliament um and an easy access to the courts who can in real time pretty much um, and analyze and critique particular decisions if they are impacting in a way which is um which is disproportionate on individuals or groups so w- with all those provisos i think the there is a worry that this is all being 
put through on the knot um, and that the consequences we will have to we have to pick up the pieces later but there is also the um we, we, we we've got to be the ones who who are the slightly annoying um fly in the ointment to make sure that things are done properly and that we don't miss miss things out yeah because i've also been amazed by the speed with which public opinion has or at least twitter public opinion has has got behind these (laughs) and it's been extraordinary to me that we are now perfectly you know i I think i think some people are quietly struggling with it but are perhaps being told that they shouldn't be and so being quieter than they should be and um while undoubtedly many of these measures are necessary i think absolutely right we have to keep watching them very closely because even if they are necessary or some of them are necessary in the short term looking at them and scrutinizing them is absolutely absolutely imperative isn't it i I think that just one other thing i'd say is that there is something quite there's something quite unique about this crisis which is different to terrorism um, and other natural disasters that we've we've experienced and it's this that generally with with human rights law um, and good public administration you should only do what's proportionate which means you should only do um the 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 least that is necessary to achieve the aim you want to achieve and no more so don't use a hammer to crack a nut but the problem here is because the science is so first of all difficult to understand and second of all unclear as to what is about to happen you know is this going to be a virus that potentially kills millions of people is it going to be a virus that kills that kills thousands of people and and, and will peter off in a few weeks time or will it be with us for a year or two or even longer because there is such enormous variation in the potential risks it's very, very difficult to decide what a proportionate policy would be um, because we simply don't know. And the, and the scientists don't know. Um, they can all m- make their best guess and we're, and we're guided by their best guesses. But we're not scientists. I say we, we um, lawyers are not scientists. I mean, in fact, the, the public authority, the, the, the prime minister and, and the ministers around him are not scientists either. So the, there's a slight it, there's a there's an unknown right in the middle of all this which is which is makes things extremely uncomfortable in terms of setting policy because in theory if this if the worst case scenarios are are about to happen or potentially going to happen then there is there's is a real justification for very very significant changes to the way we live to our economy to our to our you know, private lives but if the if the effects are going to be much less, then there arguably is less justification for those kind of changes. So, in that in those circumstances at the moment, I just find it's very very difficult to gauge what the right and proportionate um, reaction would be. And I think people find that rightly difficult to to process. That's the end of this first edition of the Bunker Daily. There's a good explainer of the bill on the Each Other website. I'll tweet the link to it for anyone who'd like to follow that up. Please do follow us on Twitter, BunkerPod. That's Bunker underscored pod. And if you haven't heard it yet, listen to yesterday's full-length episode of the main Bunker show. And there's a two-part special edition of the Better Human podcast that Adam has done, which is out now if you'd really like to get into the detail. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily. Remember, there is a world outside your window, but it needn't be a world of dread and fear. Well, not entirely. 
Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Music